every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 9th of January, 2024. We have a global audience on Money Talk, so thank you for listening wherever you are in the world. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Chinese authorities hinted Monday that they may cut the amount of money banks must set aside as reserves to boost lending. The People's Bank of China may use open market operations, medium-term lending facilities and reserve requirements, among other monetary policy tools, to provide strong support for reasonable growth in credit, Zhu Lan, head of PBOC's monetary policy department, told the state-run Xinhua News Agency. The PBOC last cut the reserve requirement ratio, or triple R, in September, shortly after Mr. Zhu made similar comments. U.S. congressional leaders have reached a $1.7 trillion deal on the level of federal spending for 2024, less than two weeks before a budget deadline. The figure includes $886 billion U.S. dollars for defense and more than $704 billion for non-defense spending, according to Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson. The deal now needs approval from the House of Representatives and the Senate, and they have less than two weeks to finalize funding and avert the suspension of some federal services. An executive director of China Evergrande's electric vehicle making unit has been detained on suspicion of illegal crimes, the company said on Monday. Lu Yongzhu, the vice chairman of China Evergrande New Energy Vehicle Group, has been detained in accordance with the law, the company said in a Hong Kong stock exchange filing. It didn't give further details on why exactly Mr Lu had been held. Reuters is reporting that NVIDIA plans to begin mass production of an artificial intelligence chip specifically designed for the Chinese market in the second quarter of 2024. NVIDIA's H20 chip will be made to comply with new US regulations on exports of high-tech equipment to China. Approximately 20 to 25% of NVIDIA's crucial data center business is derived from its sales in China, the company said, meaning that it could be vulnerable to Washington's ongoing drive to limit Beijing's access to AI materials. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or take a look at my Facebook page with the same name, Peter Lewis Money Talk. U.S. stocks bounced back Monday after a tough week last week to start 2024. The S&P 500 climbed 1.4% to 4,764 after shedding 1.5% last week to break a nine-week winning streak. Last night's move leaves the benchmark index just 0.7% away from topping a record high set in January 2022. The Dow was up more modestly, weighed down by Boeing. It closed 217 points higher, or 0.6%, at 37,683, after dropping over 200 points earlier in the day. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite rose 2.2% to 14,844, its best day since mid-November. Shares in Boeing slumped 8%, the most in more than a year, after one of its planes was involved in a dramatic mid-air blowout in the US. 
all of the Magnificent Seven stocks were in the green, regaining 75% of their 2024 losses after slumping last week. Shares of NVIDIA led the pack, jumping 6.4% after Reuters reported that the chipmaker plans to begin mass production of an artificial intelligence chip for the Chinese market. The 10-year Treasury yield dropped below 4% at one stage Monday. It ended the day, though, three basis points lower at 4.02%. And the US dollar index sold off 0.2% amid risk-on sentiments. The yen saw gains versus the buck. After its poor start to the year, it rose 0.3% to 144.2 yen to the dollar. The Chinese yuan was the underperformer. The dollar rose 0.2% to 7.154 renminbi in Shanghai. Gold ended the day 0.9% lower at $2,028 an ounce. Brent crude oil dropped 3.4% to $76.12 a barrel after Saudi Arabia announced that it will cut key crude prices for buyers in all regions for February in a sign that the world's biggest exporter expects global demand to slow. The price of Bitcoin jumped almost 8% to around $47,125. That's its highest in almost two years ahead of an expected decision this week from the Securities and Exchange Commission on whether to permit stock market funds that invest in Bitcoin. The Hong Kong market led losses in the Asia-Pacific region on Monday, followed by Chinese A-shares, which dropped after shadow banking conglomerate Zhongxi Enterprise Group filed for bankruptcy liquidation late Friday in one of China's biggest ever corporate failures. The Hang Seng Index plunged 311 points, or 1.9%, to an over 14-month low of 16,224. All sectors ended lower, with the tech index sinking 3%. Shares of the electric vehicle manufacturing arm of property developer China Evergrande plunged as much as 23% at one stage on Monday after the unit revealed its vice chairman had been detained. The shares closed 6% lower. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite tumbled 1.4% to 2,888. That's the lowest level since October 2022. And the CSI 300 index of the largest listed companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen dropped 1.5% to an almost five-year low. Are expecting a rebound in Hong Kong, though, this morning. The Hang Seng projected to open about 250 points higher at around 16,475. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's much to talk about this Tuesday morning, so let's get straight on with this and welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you. And also with us is Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Welcome back, Richard, and Happy New Year to you too. Thank you much. Looking forward to it. And also a Happy New Year, of course, to Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent, who we find in a chilly Washington, D.C., I suspect. Morning, Barry. Yes, that is correct. And Happy New Year to you, Peter. But yes, it's chilly in D.C. It has been well below freezing over the last few days, but we did have a lot of sunshine today after torrential rain over the weekend. However, that rain could have been snow if it were just a few kilometers further to the north. 
Oh, my goodness. Where I am, the snow is on its way, I understand. <laughs> but I didn't know you did weather reports as well, Peter. I do everything. <laughs> I, I turn my hands to many things. <laughs> I'm also going to talk about budget deals as well. US congressional leaders have reached a $1.7 trillion deal on the level of federal spending for 2024. That comes less than two weeks before a budget deadline. Um, the news was jointly announced by Chuck Schumer, who's the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Johnson, who's the Republican Speaker of the House. The the figure includes $886 billion for defence and more than $704 billion for non-defence spending, according to Mike Johnson. And um, Barry, the thing that really stands out for me from this, as, as well as them, of course, agreeing the deal, is how much you spend on defence over there. It's about 55% of the, the total budget. And then I suspect if you add in things like uh, social security benefits, like Medicare and Medicaid, that accounts for about three quarters of the budget by the sounds of it. There you are. That's not good. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure on this data, but I think the United States defense budget exceeds the defense budgets of the next five biggest spending countries collectively. So, yes, it's a huge number. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this can't go on. Mm. I can sort of understand now why it's so hard to, to get this down, because the Republicans refuse to cut defence spending, don't they? And the Democrats refuse to cut Social Security, like Medicare and Medicaid. So with, unless there's some change in those two, this, this budget deficit is never going to come down. Regrettably, I think you're right. And it requires a crisis for this to be resolved. And there is no sign, and there hasn't been for at least five years, that the United States Congress is prepared to even address the issue. You know, there can be all kinds of talk about cut non-defense spending, cut defense spending. Nothing happens for what the reason that you just offered. And I think the real data that's important is the percentage of gross domestic product that is the deficit. And that will grow under this agreement to at least 5.7%. It has been about 3.8% in the current fiscal year. So, yes, they can call this an agreement, but it will be overshot. We can almost predict that. No one is really satisfied, and it makes the budget deficit considerably worse. This is not a good deal. The only thing that's good about it is that Mike Johnson has demonstrated for now that he's willing to work with the Democratic leadership. And of course, it doesn't include either the, the amounts that President Biden has asked for for additional spending for Israel and Ukraine. Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan and all of that. Now, there's much unanimity on both Ukraine and on, in fact, on all three, Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. So it's going to get worse. This is, this is uh, a sorry state of affairs here in the States. Mark and Richard, is this going to become a focus this year? I mean, we've talked many times about the, the state of uh, the budget deficit in the US and the amount of debt that's being racked up um, in the process and wondering, you know, what is going to bring this to a head? Um, are we getting maybe to, to the point where this is going to become a, a big issue? Well, I think it, it is. And, you know, what, what governments, you know, they look at governments in Asia, for example, look at the U.S. and look at the situation and aren't encouraged by that and and by other things. I mean, what worries me, and Barry knows more about this certainly than 
than I do is that it's not through yet. Even this bad deal has to go through. And that House Freedom Caucus called it a total failure, which suggests they don't like it much, but they, maybe not for reasons that are going to be very helpful. So it sort of underlines what Barry said, that there just doesn't seem any serious approach to dealing with this, with the deficit. And, you know, in 2024, with a major election coming up, the chances of that are uh, are lower than zero, I would say, at this point. Richard, do deficits matter? But they do, but one can't help thinking that if the US is going, doing this badly, then Europe is likely to be doing even worse. And uh, that's where the uh, issues with government deficits popped up in 2008. Um, we had issues with more with, with private uh, debt in 2008 in the US. Uh, so I, I think that it may well be that Europe is a canary in the coal mine, but we're not there yet. I mean, uh, I think we've had a number of people, including Ray Dalio hedge fund um, uh, leaders in the US, come out and uh, say how the deficit really is key, and most crashes end in some kind of uh, debt crisis. Um, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I think maybe Europe uh, could well be first. Uh, but it is quite concerning when you think that China probably needs to increase its budget as well. Um, also, not only in defense, because they're going to look at these US figures, but also in terms of what they need to do in, in their own home spending, domestic spending. I mean, one of the features of last just, year was that, that was interesting was just how well the market soaked up all this debt issuance, all this issuance of treasury yeah. bonds to, to fund all of this. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how long that can go on? It does. And I think that uh, this notion that for almost all countries, if your budget deficit is growing and large, your currency goes down. That is the problem that faces United States policymakers. Our currency has not gone down. This currency remaining as the world's currency, essentially, has protected the United States, given it what the French used to call an exorbitant advantage, an undeserved advantage. And until there's some kind of dollar crisis, and that, as Richard suggests, it's not in the cards. Now, I will add one thing to you, what you just said, Richard, and that is that the Germans are pretty much obsessed by, you know, sound finance. And they actually have a constitutional provision that prevents a very serious budget deficit. I'm not as worried about Europe as I am about America. Well, I think the yep. thing about Europe is the collective Europe. You're, you're quite right. I mean, we grew up in the good old days of the Bundesbank and the sound money because they had seen what rampant inflation was. Uh, but of course, European deficits are very high and Germany very often backstops that too. Um, I, I, I think we're not in a situation of, of concern with debt and deficits at the moment. It's coming up now because of the budget uh, uh, discussions in, in Washington. What I think is maybe of more concern in the shorter term is the politics of all of this, because the politics of all of this is going to be the deficits will continue to grow. But in the very short term, are those few Republicans who are standing out against some kind of deal going to make it into a crisis as they often do this time? Or because it's an election year, will they be concerned that by standing up, they're going to damage the standing of the Republican 
Republican Party. Uh, and I guess you two guys, uh, Barry and Mark, probably have a better view on that. I'll let Barry... Well, Barry no, I, I think you're, you're right, uh, Richard. Uh, look, uh, I don't think the right-wing Republicans, the Freedom Caucus, they're not going to wreck this at the moment because they've seen enough destruction within the Republican Party. I mean, you could make the case the Republicans over the last six to nine months have been self-destructing. But everyone knows, this sounds like a Leonard Cohen song, that this deal is not the final word. This It's going to get even worse. But a dollar crisis... Not in the offing, not for now. So I, I agree with what you say, Richard. Mark, are there, there, are, are there be, places uh, in Asia where we should be concerned about this as well? Well, uh, well, I just wanted to add that the holders of U.S. debt, uh, many of them are, are, are around us, right, yes. including, <laughs> including Hong Kong. And, and, and they have to think also about what they're going to do. It wouldn't be only for this reason, obviously, but they are, you know, there have been various moves by China and by others. Japan rethinking Japan as its own issues and and other and very so that could add to the mix in addition to uh, some of the other elements we've talked about. Mm. Should, and should we be worried about things like Japanese debt and maybe increasingly Chinese debt as well? Yeah, well, Chinese, Chinese well, of course, the IMF says they're worried about Chinese debt as they keep doing that. China finds finds ways to sort of uh, make that a little less worrying at, at times, whether that's going to continue or not. Japanese debt, of course, mainly domestic. That doesn't make us feel any better. And and they're, they're, sort, of, they're sort of facing it, but it's, it doesn't seem to be overwhelming at the moment. It could tip in that direction any time, especially if, if market sentiment changes. But at this point, that, that's, that's not a major worry. I say that tomorrow, though, it will go crazy. But that's, that's my feeling at this point. But the, the, the thing is that despite the recent fluctuations in the, in the bond markets, the trend for bond yields is, is higher, isn't it? And um, certainly we're never going to get back in our lifetimes to the days of zero um, in interest rates. So the costs of financing this um, is going up for governments all over the world, including the US, Japan, China. Well, it's yeah. doubled since 2014. So in the yeah. US, so so the cost is going up, but not only for governments, but the cost of debt is going up for ordinary people as well. Mm. Um, uh, which is an interesting point about the economy is whether central banks keep rates at this sort of level, which at least money has some sort of cost to it, as it should do, um, or whether they will bring interest rates down if we start seeing some sort of slump. Um, goodness knows the global economies probably need some sort of slump, some sort of clear out. But policymakers in the last several decades of uh, 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 the, any sign of a stock market crash or an economic slump have, have printed money. And uh, that's been the source of the issues we've just been talking about. Peter, I would say um, never say never. I mean, look, zero interest rates. Uh, central banks love that. At uh, the time of 2008-9, and they stuck with it, I'm sure, too long. Look, uh, where the United States has some strength is not only in economic performance, but in the performance of the Federal Reserve. By bringing the interest, by bringing the inflation rate down, uh, they have, in fact, given the dollar and the U.S. economy the debt problem uh, another lease on life, and this is exceedingly. Positive. So it's not to say that the United States is a complete failure. It's just that we have to address the budget deficit, and there's no sign that we will. 
Mm. And we've got the inflation data from the US coming out Thursday, Friday this week, consumer price data on Thursday, PPI Friday. Um, Do you think the Fed has got it under control, Barry? If you were to put your neck on the block, do you think inflation at the end of 2024 is going to be higher or lower than where it is now? Well, look, whether it's um, 3.5%, 3%, even towards 4% is, I don't think, particularly a problem. The, 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 the reality is, and I think what global markets and global policymakers look at, is that what you had as a 9% inflation rate in the United States has now been on a trend line that is down. It will inevitably level. But I would think, and you asked me to put my neck on the line, I don't think inflation at the end of 2024 is going to be a problem. I think the Fed has got this thing under control. After all, we have avoided so far a recession in the United States. And the U.S. economy is really pulling the, the world at the moment. So it's not all bad here. Some I, I think Barry, Barry's right in terms of saying inflation will probably um, flatten out. But I, I don't necessarily agree with the direction of travel. My feeling is that the Fed's actually, although they put rates up, they haven't done it enough to cure a 9% inflation and that we're seeing disinflation coming out of China. And my feeling is that 2024 is going to be a year of China. You know, will China recover? Will they fire a big bazooka? Uh, because that will push in inflation up in China and around the rest of the world. Or will they ca- carry on as they are and we'll see the air coming out of the US economy so inflation will come down naturally. But I think that what we're forgetting is that the second biggest economy of, of, uh, in the world has had a big impact on a lot of these economic fundamentals in the West. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have to incorporate that into our analysis. Yeah, and it's what our our members are looking at every day and and, and twice on Sundays or, or whatever. It's, it's just, <laughs> just really important. And they're not sure. It's really, really uncertain. You know, how much are they going to invest in China? It's not only geopolitics, but it's exactly what Richard just described. And, uh, you know, they, the assumption was the recovery was going to show pretty strong signs in 2023. That did not happen. Uh, is 2024 going to be any better? Are the, do the Chinese, does the Chinese government have enough levers to pull? And can they pull them effectively that are going to help, uh, help, uh, help, uh, help ease the situation? That is pretty unclear at this point, as, as Richard sort of outlined. And, so and Richard, I would nervous. add to what you're saying that um, China has been an exporter of disinflation. And that has meant that the United States inflation rate has been assisted in its downward trajectory. And and so that's that's good. I mean, I've been checking Walmart and, and Target. I mean, prices are retreating. Uh, and it's largely because price rises have not occurred on those exports coming in from from China. Mm. The, the, we must be getting some help from the base effects too. You know that inflation was high last year, therefore it's going to seem lower uh, if inflation's slowing down. But people do remember, don't they, that um, you know a couple of years ago prices were a lot cheaper. Maybe that's one of the reasons why um, consumers are being more more cautious, even though inflation is slowing. Um, as far as they're concerned, prices are still too high for them. Yeah, well, that's you, true, if, Peter. But look at airplanes. Airplanes worldwide, and I know we're, we've got a Boeing problem once again, but airplanes are full. There, there mm. aren't enough 
planes to accommodate the demand. Uh, travel has exploded. A lot of that is, is of course, from the post-pandemic effect. But uh, people are spending. Uh, yes, things are not. Things are slowing as the Federal Reserve wanted to have happen. But uh, I don't. I don't see the global economy in a in a real problem zone at this at this point. But, it, but the perce- perception's important, as as you sort of suggested. And you know, every Barry Cena too. The uh, campaign commercials are remembering the good old days when inflation was much lower under a former administration. <laughs> we won't mention any names, but you can. You know, this is the point. I guess. People don't always feel it, even though what Barry says is exactly right. Of course, what what the uh, what the Fed has done, then Barry, has been quite remarkable, hasn't it? Because it's very rare that you get um, inflation brought down as fast as it has been over the last couple of years without the economy also going into a recession. Absolutely, Peter, because interest rates doubled. I mean, that's extraordinary, and the housing market is not flat on its back. The housing market is weaker than it would have been otherwise, but it's it's in one sense still buoyant. So, yes, I agree. This is extraordinary what the Federal Reserve has achieved. I hope the European Central Bank can be as effective and certainly the Bank of England. But uh, you're in a better position to assess that. And what do you make of the jobs data? We talk about it every month. Uh, This time around, once again, uh, the headline number exceeded expectations. Employers added 216,000 jobs. The unemployment rate was unchanged at 3.7%. Uh, uh, all told, the U.S. has added 2.7 million jobs last year. That's an average of about 225,000 a month. Pay also showed signs of rising, with average hourly earnings in December up 4.1% from a year earlier. The only thing I wonder, Barry, this time around, I mean, clearly the headline number is strong, but when you dig deeper into these numbers, there are um, some signs that things are slowing down Um Aren't there particularly things like the labour force participation rate? Um, that fell by 0.3 percentage points. It's also taking longer now for unemployed Americans to find work. And according to the Household Employment Survey, the number of full-time employees dropped by the most since April 2020. Are we seeing some signs <laughs> maybe if we delve into the numbers um, below the headline that perhaps the jobs market now is slowing? I'm sure that you can find evidence to support what you've just said. But what I see are help-wanted signs everywhere. I see an economy that is essentially at full employment and that is growing at a probably 2 to 2.5% rate. So looks pretty good from here. So, Mark and Richard, how can the Fed cut rates at this rate? They can't and they won't, is my view. I, I, think it's I great- hope you're right, Richard. <laughs> it's the great myth of 2024 is that the Fed's going to cut rates um, uh, significantly. I mean, I think there's no doubt we'll see some uh, pandering towards that, maybe one, two, three cuts in the first uh, half of the year. Uh, that takes uh, interest rates down to 4%. That's not very low um, in, in historical terms. Uh, and they're hardly likely to do anything in the second half of the year with the election coming up. So, um, uh, so I think people are going to be disappointed on that front. And I do wonder whether these job numbers are maybe slightly the last hurrah uh, that support markets, but but don't enable them to go much further. Uh, our our forecast is that they're going to 
and we don't know, obviously, either that that the cuts will come probably, but not not quite as early as Richard says. And I know the election is coming up. I wonder what Barry thinks of that. But feeling is closer to mid-year and and maybe thereafter, because it could be an advantage, too, for for the election. Who knows? Barry, what's your view of that? Well, I mean, look, uh, it's a long way off, yeah. Mark. And and I, I, you know, standard thinking is that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. I'm on the other side of that. Uh, I don't think he will be. But uh, boy, am I a lonely voice. And no, uh, I'm, Joe, I'm totally with you, Barry. That's another twenty four. <laughs> is that, you know, a, a year is a long time in politics, especially when you're 78. And Trump has headwinds like no other candidate. Uh, he may be a great campaigner, but there's so much against him. So my yeah. guess is that he will trip up at some stage. He turns all these headwinds into advantages, though, doesn't he? Time and time again. Well, he can for his own supporters, but, you know, elections are won on the middle ground. And the question is whether people will really start focusing on, you, you know, there, there still must be a lot of moderate Republicans out there uh, that will be voting the primaries. Mm. I wonder, if you know, if you compare his campaign to the last one, this time he sounds much more angrier, doesn't he? Are, are Americans willing to elect an angry old man who's threatening venge, revenge on all his enemies and all the people who thinks he's slighted him? Is this what Americans sort of want to hear? Well, we'll find out. Uh, my own guess is, Peter, uh, no, they're, they're not going to elect such a person. And I do agree that he is an angry man now. Uh, but uh, th there's a lot ahead of us over the next six weeks. I mean, Super Tuesday comes up in March and we have Iowa and we have New Hampshire coming and then South Carolina. So, uh, you know, all expectations are Trump is going to do very well in all this. But, uh, yeah, and I, to come back to what Mark was saying about uh, the election year, monetary policy. Uh, look, uh, the Fed will cut rates if the economy weakens too much, but they've wanted a weaker, a less robust economy. So I'm with Richard on this one. I, I hope they don't cut rates. I, I hope they, they stay high. It's nice that savers are finally being rewarded. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not just the U.S. that faces elections this year. Look at the elections around the world. It's extraordinary. We'll know a lot more by mid-year as to where the world economy and indeed the global economy, uh, the global political economy is headed. Well, that's yeah, an we'll important point. Sorry, Mark. No, I was just going to say we're going to have a lot to talk about next week. This is the year of elections. And uh, we've just had, had Bangladesh. We're going to have Taiwan coming up very quickly. Indonesia, not so long from now as well. Uh, there's a lot going on just in this part of the world before well before we get to november and don't forget little old bhutan it's having its election today yeah, yeah. i thought oh, you were going to talk to us about the uk and the incoming <laughs> labor government of course you've got to add india to that mix too although that that looks like uh, we know who the who the likely uh, winner is going to be there but you never know 
Let's turn our attention to this area of the world. The big news over the weekend was Chinese shadow banking giants Zhongzhou Enterprise Group filing for bankruptcy. It's one of China's biggest ever corporate failures. A Beijing court on Friday accepted the investment group's application uh, for bankruptcy, said ZEG's assets are insufficient to pay off all debts and it clearly lacks the ability uh, to repay in full. The shortfall is estimated to be about 38 billion uh, US dollars. Um, Richard, very clear signal being sent here by Beijing, isn't it? In in that it's prepared to let this company fail, which is at the the heart of the shadow banking system. Well, that that's right, but I think it also reflects the size of the of, of the debts involved. You know, they haven't been able to uh, really rescue it um, uh, at all. These shadow banking companies are very important because a lot of them are raising money from uh you know wealthy but individual investors the kind of investors that you know we, we would probably be put a bit of money into them so it can go far and wide and and uh, bankruptcy in this situation um, in china isn't quite like it is elsewhere it's not like a bank completely going under i think the chinese uh, authorities will look to support those small savers in some way um, but it does reflect all of the calls that people have had about the the Chinese shadow banking over the years that it really got too big uh, it was a way of banking without regulation uh, and will soon one day turn around and, and, and bite the system but this is a big area, isn't it? It's what almost three trillion dollars. The, uh, uh, the the trust sector. There's probably more Jongers uh, out there. It's uh, extraordinary the the size of some of these things, and we've seen the size, of course, of some of the uh, property companies that are in trouble are extraordinary. I think you know we're looking at Apple, uh, and we're amazed at Apple's market cap. The total value of the company is around, you know, two to three trillion dollars. And and here we are with um, companies people have hardly heard of with, with depths of this size. So it is a really big issue, I think, for the Chinese authorities to deal with. Um, and my I suspect that they're going to have to deal with it a lot more firmly than they have at the moment. I, I presume they've looked into this closely before they allowed the company to go bankrupt and, and were gone through the balance sheet with a fine tooth comb. And they must have convinced themselves that they're able to handle this and deal with it and, and resolve it um, without causing some sort of systematic crisis. Well, it's also an excuse to clear out the management too and, and bring in new management um, uh, that they're confident and they're supportive. It, it is interesting that they've already charged uh, some of the leadership with um, uh, with, with various uh, allegations. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the issues with these companies is they've been allowed to go on for too long without proper regulation. And um, uh, the authorities have, have had enough and they're going to clear it out and bring in new management. Mark, does this have an impact on the wider economy? Because there's a lot of individuals who invest in these products, albeit wealthy individuals, but nevertheless, a lot of people there. Does it sort of have an impact on sort of consumer confidence and uh, confidence overall in the in the system and the economy? I was just about to uh, to talk about that a little bit because clearly it does. Now, shadow banking has had a has has had a checkered career, a checkered history in in China, but it does it does play has played a very important role, especially in uh, in in comparison with the with the standard banks, 
because there are certain things that they can't do. And it's not just regulation. Standard uh, shadow banks are more flexible. They formed an important uh, source of funding for individuals as well as as well as some companies occasionally. And I think it does affect confidence. It's just another another nail that they're putting in the, the Chinese economy right now. And we talked about some of the issues. Doesn't mean that Chinese economy isn't going to be able to to uh, to recover to some extent, but this just makes it more difficult, especially if it continues to any extent. Because again, we don't know how far this goes. And I presume, Barry, when you look at this from the, the US, for, from a US investor's perspective, it's yet another reason when they see this and hear about this to stay away from uh, the Chinese markets and make them sort of consider about whether or not they want to invest in China. Absolutely. Look, uh, just on television on this Monday in, in, in the States, uh, there were several experts who manage money that traditionally goes into China saying, stay away. So there is a lot of skepticism and there's an outflow, as as viewers, listeners know, from China. So, yeah, I don't think there's going to be any reversal of that in coming months. Mark, what, what are your members' sense of the, the Chinese economy this year? Uh, uh, do they get any sort of feeling that maybe it's going to turn a corner um, and that perhaps maybe even um, you know Chinese policymakers will get the big bazooka out and try and help support the economy more? Well, that's it. It's the it's the bazooka, whether it's a big bazooka or a, a middle-sized bazooka. And the hope is that uh, the Chinese authorities are able to to uh, to make some moves that will will at least make make it a steadier a steadier economy. The, the forecasts are that economic growth actually might be a little less than this year, but still looking relatively strong compared, if not strong, at least a little better than much of the rest of the world. Uh, and we'll see if that occurs. But the doubts that were that raised are still there. So China is not uninvestable, as far as has been said by some cabinet officials in the U.S. and others, uh, as far as these companies are concerned. But they're certainly being more cautious, even those that are strongly committed to China. It's it's China plus one, China plus two, uh, and also also trying looking much more carefully at their their investments there and what they're going to do going forward. And of course, they've got a lot of pressure from headquarters, whether the European or, <laughs> or North American companies, to say the least. Those Monday morning or Tuesday morning calls are pretty, uh, are, are not always welcome. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Richard, what, what, what do you think of um, the, the policy response so far? R- rumors today about a possible reserve requirement ratio cut once again, the PBOC muttering about uh, adding extra support. The problem is uh, the economy doesn't really need um, extra credits, does it? That's, that's not really the problem. Well, that, that's right. So it's a question of how how do you actually uh, impart that big bazooka? But I, I think one of the issues is that markets and economies need to be shocked um, into action. It's no good dripping uh, policies into the market bit by bit, because what happens is they just tend to get lost in the general noise. Uh, and all of a sudden you find your, your debts are very high um, and you've not really done very much. And this is exactly the problem that happened with Japan, which was, you know, a great uh, nation full of uh, uh, full of credits um, in in sort of the 90s and, and uh, going through the 90s. Uh, and all of a sudden it's turned to be one of the biggest 
detonations in the world, albeit with it, it being domestic. You know, in if, if you're going to tackle these things, you have to come in with uh, with a big move uh, and shock the markets into saying we really are serious and almost forcing them by uh, almost the dint of what you've done to um, uh, to recover because uh, you're going to lose money otherwise. So it's difficult to see how you do it without adding credit to the economy. But in a sense, maybe that's what's needed because we've got all these uh, unsatisfied debts that are bouncing around at the moment that we're discovering almost daily. Um, so maybe providing credit is the answer. It just needs to be directed to the right uh, areas. Are people being too gloomy about the Chinese economy? I mean, we look at the the service sector, for example, it's expanding at its fastest pace in, in five months. If we look at the PMI um, data, yes, manufacturing is a little bit in the doldrums, but certainly services seem to be seem to be doing pretty well at the moment. Well, I think that's part of the recovery that we would naturally expect at this stage. So uh, I'm not terribly surprised to see that. But, uh, you know, we see it in Hong Kong. There's a, a dearth, for instance, of Chinese visitors coming out. Um, there just seems to be a dearth of money being spent here. Uh, and I think it's this element of confidence that uh, disappeared over COVID and hasn't really come back. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, it's a kind of long COVID in, in part that, that's having this impact. Still saying that, you know, we may be wrong. We, we are maybe not optimistic, but feeling a little bit better about China in 2024, thinking that they may be, the government may be moving in the right direction. But again, all these issues we've raised uh, could turn things very quickly, in addition to the external forces that are pretty substantial this year in, in so many different ways. Barry, I, I suspect that this year we're not going to see any easing, are we, of the trade tensions between the, the US and China? Yeah, We've yeah. now got uh, US lawmakers talking about not just um, high, um, high-end high technology chips, they're now going to target some of these older generation chips as well that, uh, that, that China is dominated in, that, uh, that are used in other, um, other sectors of the market, but still pretty crucial uh, to sort of economic prosperity in the, in, uh, in the yeah, US. Yeah, I think seem regrettably... Regrettably, you're, you're, you've got it right, Peter. I, I, I don't think, for the reasons we've talked about just in the last few minutes, there's going to be any real improvement. There could be, uh, if you start seeing some cooperation on climate, that, that could be very helpful. But I think uh, on balance, uh, it would be very hard to be optimistic about an improvement in U.S.-China relations. How are companies themselves dealing with this? I mean, we, we hear things like NVIDIA as fast as, you know, the US puts in regulations. Companies like NVIDIA try to find ways in which they can develop special chips for uh, the, the Chinese market that sort of get around some of the restrictions. Is this the way uh, that companies are going to have to move um, going forward? And is the US prepared to, to allow that even, to, to allow companies like NVIDIA to find sort of workarounds? No, I think there'll be uh, a hammer brought down on NVIDIA. This is so complicated. I mean, you know, to decipher these chips and how one chip in, can be allowed and another one not. I mean, this mm. is complicated stuff. So, yeah, I, I just, uh, you've got American companies essentially salivating to get back into the China market. Um, and they're being frustrated and they're keeping their heads down. So they're not optimistic. Mm. Right, Mark? Yeah, the 
Yeah, they're, yeah, they're looking for ways to get around it. Obviously, Nvidia is in a a key area that's going to get a lot of scrutiny. But even those that are not in the highest tech areas are worried about this, you know, because at times they also have had restrictions put on them. So they're looking for ways to manage this, if you know, ways to get products into China, or and often that means getting them into into China from somewhere else which is one of the things that, that they do or finding other ways to manage this. Uh, it, it takes up a lot of their, a lot of their day to mm -hmm. try to try to deal with this. And again, it's not just high tech, it's in a lot of other areas as well. So to say it's a, it's a little unstable is probably an understatement at the moment. Mm. And not just for the US, for the EU as well, isn't it? They seem to be yeah, dragged sure. into more and more uh, disputes. We've now got the, the Chinese looking at an anti-dumping uh, uh, anti uh, restrictions because of brandy sales from, brandy. Uh, from the EU. <laughs> how dare they I, dump brandy? <laughs> it's hard to imagine I, 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 how I, I, you I, can dump a high-end product like that, really, isn't it? Which is very <laughs> expensive. No, no, uh, absolutely. And then... You know that's that's French mainly, but I used to I used to work for a major uh, major uh, major advocacy group for the uh, for for uh, for spirits uh, based in Europe, and you know this was always an issue, <laughs> even if there wasn't really an issue, it was an obvious target, and it seems to hit at the heart of you know if you're talking about the UK, and it's whiskey or you know of the French and it's brandy or wine and so on, this seems to be a, a way of of trying to deal with these <laughs> these issues, uh, uh, if not a hammer, at least uh, at least uh, at least something to pound on them with. Can I finish off, Richard? Just getting your thoughts on the on the markets. Um, we've had quite a lot of volatility, haven't we, for the first uh, sort of week of the year? Um, U.S. stocks, global stocks, not doing too well in the first uh, first week, but did recover um, overnight. And then Hang Chinese stocks, the Hang Seng Index is at a fourteen month low. The CSI three hundred on the mainland at an almost five year uh, low. We were hoping that maybe um, the the worst was over for for local markets last year. It doesn't seem to appear that way. Well, I, I, my feeling has been that we borrowed a lot of performance in 2023 that we probably should have had in 2024. So I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a significant fall in Western markets. Um, and the model that I'm kind of looking at is a fall in Western markets, but a recovery in China, uh, predicated on the Chinese coming in with some very strong moves to um, uh, to stimulate the economy. Now, that's, if you like, a base case. But at the moment, of course, we've seen these job numbers on Friday, as I said, I think are kind of the last hurrah. Um, it seems to be difficult to see what other good news is going to come out. So I still think that we are going to see falls in, in the US market. But the Chinese market, um, and of course, with Hong Kong on that, are not really going to recover unless some significant recovery in the in in the in um, the, the, the Chinese economy. And if you wanted to put your neck on the block by the end of this year, is is the Hang Seng going to be higher than where it is now? I would say the Hang Seng probably is again predicated on the basis of the fact that you know we're going to see some strong moves from the Chinese authorities to reflate that economy. Which uh, so I think the Hang Seng will be higher. But I think what my model on the on Hong Kong is that it's an option on China. If China does well, Hong Kong will do very well. China does badly, as we've seen last year, Hong Kong does badly. So, uh, we're very much that kind of process. 
Okay, someone's got a cold somewhere in the background there, <laughs> yeah, I think. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you go off and recover. Thank you all very much there. You heard uh, Richard Harris, who is Chief Executive <laughs> Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and of course, our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. And thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines. To discuss them, I'll be joined by Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. And with a view from Japan is Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities Japan. Please subscribe to my daily newsletter, which contains updates on business and finance news from the Asia-Pacific region and affecting Asia. You'll find it at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.